The Old Testament reading for Utica, the fifth Sunday in Lent, is from Genesis chapter 22, beginning at the first verse. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the knife and the fire. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the burnt offering, or where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horn. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. You delivered me from my enemies. You rescued me from the man of violence. The epistle is from Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at the 11th verse. 
but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to, to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. The Gospel is written in the 8th chapter of St. John, beginning at the 42nd verse. Glory be to Thee, O Lord. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and nothing to do, he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth within him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Why do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. So, Last week, we discussed how to destroy a nation. So this Sunday, let us discuss how to destroy the church. He put it this way. He said, God has given us the papacy, so let's enjoy it. That's what the Cardinal, Cardinale Giovanni de Medici now Pope Leo X told his brother Giuliano, God has given us the papacy, let's enjoy it. Let's enjoy it. Now some historians question whether he actually did say this, whether these remarks are authentic, but they are certainly authentically characteristic of uh, Giovanni de Medici. He was a hedonist, he lived for pleasure, the luster of the Medici on the papal throne was thought was going to be wonderful, an era of good feelings. You're going to have this super wealthy, mega rich uh, cardinal from Florence. He was going to bring his money and his influence and his culture to Rome, and it was going to be just this wonderful thing. Just that it wasn't. What they got instead of peace and benevolence was extravagance and waste and bankruptcy. On one day alone when he was installed as the Pope, Giovanni spent one-seventh of all the wealth accrued by his predecessor Julius II. And it was all downhill from there. At age 37, the new Pope loved everything but God's Word. He loved everything but the duty of a pastor. He loved to go hunting. He would take 100 people with him, 100 retainers with him hunting. He loved to, to go hawking or go, you know, or adverterbo. He would go stag hunting or corneto, fishing on Lake Bosena. Leo enjoyed contests of impromptu versifying. He loved gambling at cards. He loved prolonged banquets with music, especially every form of pagan theatrics. He loved amusement, he loved laughter. As Leo's taste for the classical theater filled Rome with endless spectacles, 
in a strange mixture of paganism and Christianity, pageants of ancient mythology, carnival masquerades, dramas of Roman history. On occasion, even paganism invaded the Vatican. In one, uh, one service, uh, it's mentioned how uh, the preacher, it wasn't, of course, Leo, he didn't do that, but the preacher glorified and gave glory to the immortals of Greek mythology, the Greek gods, goddesses. In the congregation, some of them reacted with anger, some of them just laughed at the preacher for his ignorance, but the Pope, oh, I didn't bother him. It's all good. Yet the question that Leo failed to ask, and, the, and what his four predecessors failed to ask, was what kind of apostleship of Christianity did the supreme pontiff see themselves as filling? What, what were the believers to look up to who wished to rever revere the holiness and trust the Pope as supreme priest? Because you see, the Renaissance popes, ending with Leo X, they made no pretense to holiness or any gestures to their religious vocation, while those in their charge never clambered more for it more loudly. No, but unconcerned with the indignation of the common folk and the, and, the, and the regular clergy, Leo made no attempt to curtail his extravagance. He never tried economizing. Never once. Even though it was plain to all to see that there was a break, outbreak of dissent coming, especially as the intellectuals of, the, of, the, uh, of, Ro of Rome and the intellectuals of Europe began to turn their backs on the papacy in favor of, as Jacques Lefebvre of the Sorbonne in Paris said, we are going back to the sources of scripture to find the basis for our faith, which is, I agree. Erasmus of Rotterdam wrote, the monarchy of the papacy in Rome as it is now is a pestilence to Christendom. And Machiavelli, he wrote in Florence, he said he has found proof of decadence in the fact that the nearer people are to the church of Rome, which is the head of our religion, the less religious they are. And the indictment was finally summarized in one sentence by Giorcardini. He wrote, the reverence for the papacy has been utterly lost in the hearts of men. But immersed in his money, in his marble monuments, Leo wasn't listening. After all, he had a new project. He was going to build a new church in Rome. He was going to call it St. Peter's. And he just had hired the best fundraiser in Europe to do the work of raising the money with the sale of indulgences. The guy's name is, of course, the Dominican monk, John Tetzel. And Luther, Martin Luther, had just been installed at a little-known university in Saxony in a little-known town called Wittenberg. And the rest, as they say, is history. That's how you destroy the church. That's how it's done. And perhaps the church wouldn't have been shattered into Protestant and papal factions if Leo and his predecessors had done what the intellectuals were doing and simply returned to Scripture and in Jesus' words, in God's word, had found the basis for their vocations. You see, 
What Leo and the other Renaissance popes fail to recognize or realize is what Jesus points out in today's gospel lesson. Jesus says, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. And yet everything about Leo was honoring himself. Everything about Julius II, the warrior pope, was about honoring himself. Everything by Alexander before them, before those two, were about honoring themselves. It was all about themselves. And yet Jesus says, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say, he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, then I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Notice, I, I do not honor myself, and I keep his word. This is the litmus test of true Christianity. Do we, do we honor ourselves, or do we honor Christ? And do we keep his word? Or at least strive to keep his word? At least try to keep his word? This is the litmus test. It is how we know our faith is authentic. Because Jesus says in today's gospel lesson, he who is of God hears God's word. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Do we hear his word? Or are we even listening? You see, the word for hear here, okuo, it means not just to, to simply acknowledge that sound has come out of my mouth. No, if you hear what somebody is saying in the, in, the, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, it means literally you hear it in order to implement it in your life. If you do not do this, then you are not hearing him. And you are his opponent. Which is why Jesus says to his opponents at the beginning of today's gospel lesson in John 8, 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil, because it is his deeds you want to do. I remember when I was in high school, we had a football coach, a new football coach came my senior year, and he said, gentlemen, if you want to be part of this team, you will be, you will be at practice. You will do your winter, winter weight training. You will be there. Because everyone does what they want to do. And if you don't do it, it's because you don't want it. And the only one you're lying to is yourself. You are of your father the devil, for the desire of your father is what you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Which forces us to ask ourselves a very potentially well, unpleasant question. Do we even want God's truth? Do we want God's truth? Or are you here this morning because you want something that's maybe less than the truth? Or maybe not the truth at all? Earlier in John 8, 31 to 32, before today's gospel lesson, but in the same chapter, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But the requisite, the prerequisite to being set free 
is to abide in Jesus' word. And if you abide in Jesus' word, you are his disciple. Then Jesus' listeners take umbrage with him. And they say, we are Abraham's seed. We are his descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone, which is not true, because they did the whole 450 years in Egypt. They don't, but for some reason they missed this. How can you say we will be made free? They're offended. Because the truth of God, when he speaks it to us, offends us, doesn't it? It is offensive, because I think I'm a better person than you. Clearly. And you're a better person than me. And we're certainly better than the people down the street, aren't we? And then we come to church and the pastors get up, Pastor Layman and myself, we get up and we tell you things that are offensive. And pastor offends me when he preaches, don't you, Pastor? Then Jesus elaborates. He said, he goes on to say, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever. 8, 34 to 35. Yes, Jesus confronts them and us with the hard truth. And the hard truth is this, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul points out in Romans 3.23. Surely there is no one that is righteous on earth. There is no one who does good, never sins. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. No, that's true. But this is such a negative message, isn't it? It's so negative. Pastor Parsons, Pastor Layman, why are you two so negative? Well, it's, we're not being negative. We're simply speaking truthfully. To all of us, ourselves included, we're speaking truthfully. You see, you see, if I avoid the truth because it might be perceived as sometimes being negative, I'm not helping you or myself or any of us. All we're doing is postponing the inevitable. You see, the bill must be paid. God is a just judge. He will punish our sins. He will either punish our sins upon his son in this life, or he will punish our sins forever in the place where God chooses never to be present in eternal death. But the sins must be paid for. The judgment must fall. So who will, be, who will it be? I mean, if I tell you you're good people and, you know, and I lie to you, what, what really have I given you? I've made you feel happy while I'm lying to you. And I become just a, a disciple of the devil, essentially. Because it is only the truth that shall set you free. Living our lives avoiding the truth does not lead to, the, to a good earthly life. It only anesthetizes us to the fact that we are following the easy path that leadeth unto destruction because Jesus says, he makes it very clear in Matthew 7 verse 13 and 14, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and easy is the road that leadeth unto destruction, and many there be who go therein, but narrow is the way and the gate, and difficult is the way that leads unto life, and few there be who find it. And they thought, after Jesus had said these things to them, when Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. When, after Jesus had said these things, they, they accused him of demonic possession and demonic insanity. 
But Jesus isn't insane. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the one, as Peter says in John 6, you have the words of eternal life. Lord, to whom else should we go? That's the truth. And so if we keep his word, we shall never see death. We shall never taste death. Why? How is that so? How is that so? Well, what is death? What is, what is death? Is death merely the cessation of physical phenomenon in, the, in what we call a, a human body? No, death, there's, there's death beyond death. Death beyond death. The death beyond physical death is eternal death. It's spiritual death. It is being separated from God forever. In the place where the omnipresent God chooses not to be present. And that place is called hell. And those who go there never get out. Ever. But I have good news. I have good news that you can never, you, you don't ever have to go there. You never have to fear going there if you believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are baptized into him, the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Yes. Yes, if you are in Christ, you're a new creation and nothing, there's nothing in this universe that can pluck you out of God's hand. Nothing. That's why Jesus says, I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and he will come in and go out and find pasture. The pasture that Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, gives to all those who hear his voice. And we do. And we do. We find this, we find Christ's voice beckoning us to the waters of holy baptism. There, there is the gateway into the church, the gateway of heaven. There, God's son gives us eternal life as he washes away our sins in the waters of holy baptism, which literally joins us to himself so that he becomes the vine and we become his branches. His life flows through us where his grace is given to us and his merit, which he earned through his life, which he, which he, which he established in his death upon the cross and then and then certifies in his resurrection that is all given to us in holy baptism where we put on Christ. And because Jesus beckons us to know that we have eternal life by being born again of water and the spirit as Jesus said in John 3 verse 5 to Nicodemus. Yes, and we know that baptism is the antitype which now saves us. Why? Because as Jesus tells us in the end of the gospel of Mark, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. What a wonderful thing to know that we're saved and it's all God's doing and it's all God's gift without any merit or worthiness in ourselves. And secondly, Jesus' word confirms our forgiveness at his holy altar, at what we call the Eucharistic table where he feeds us with what the ancient Christians, the first, second, and third century Christians called the medicine of immortality, which is nothing less than the true body and blood of Jesus Christ given to us under the veils of bread and wine in the Holy Supper. Yes, upon the altar, Christ gives us sinners his own body and blood to eat and drink so that we will have the certainty based on Jesus' word that our sins are forgiven, and that we have eternal life. And how do I know this? How do we know this? 
Because Jesus' word says it. A word that says we will never taste death. No, because at the Eucharist we taste life, eternal life, where Jesus says, take and eat. This is my body given for you. For you, each one of you. Take and drink. This cup is the New Testament in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And if the Son has made you free, you are free indeed. If only the Renaissance Pope had stuck to Jesus' word. And if only we do so as well. In Jesus' name, amen.